This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We have a regular show today. Well, not quite a regular show. We have guests, two guests, one at the 8.30 slot, which is normal, and then one at the 9.30 slot. So we're going to... we're gonna, not so normal. Not so normal. We usually go 8.30 and 9, and then open it up again at... At nine thirty, but we're going to go eight thirty and nine thirty. So our open segments are eight and nine. Our guests are fun guys. We have yeah. David Epstein coming up at the bottom of this hour. David, many of you know, wrote a book called The Sports Gene a few years ago. One of my favorite books. It's one of the only books I own, both the hard copy and the Kindle copy. Really? Yeah. We're going to, have to hear more. I refer to it. Why? We're, we're, we'll hear more about why that is in a little bit. He's got a new book. David has a new book out yeah. called Range, which is terrifically interesting. On the kind of perennial debate between should you generalize or specialize? Who's better off, generalists or specialists? And he comes down pretty firmly on the on one side of that. We'll leave you in suspense. And happily, fellas, we got the Jeopardy star in here at the end of the show. Last half hour of the show, we're going to talk to the record breaker, breaking all kinds of money records. Money there. records. 28 wins in a row right now. And Many people know he is a sports better historically, and that probably has something to do with his success. We're going to dig into that in the last half hour. Of the show. All right. In the first half hour, we are open. I've been away for a couple weeks. Yeah. And there's lots of things going on. I'm very curious what of these things you guys are paying attention to. Well, <laughs> there's two finals going on. There's hockey, which I actually know the Bruins do, are doing well. <clears throat> Every yep. time those Boston teams are doing well, part of me just kind of breaks apart a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but baseball really is what, what matters. I've been watching a lot of baseball. But there's, you know, basketball, which is... Full gear, French Open. Take your pick, fellas. So, so well, let's 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 service hockey a little bit. So one zero, the Bruins are up on the Blues. One zero. Yeah, um, you like Shane? I know you like the the. the you yeah, my heart's my my heart's with the St. Louis Blues on this one, just because you know they Ooh, this is their first time. Well, no, and also they've been, this is the first time they've been in the, the finals since nineteen seventy, which is a long is time that ago. True? Yeah. Um, they actually went. They were an expansion team, and I think they came in in 1968. One of the first expansion teams. They went to the finals three times in a row as an ex, you know just as an early expansion team. So they've never won in your lifetime, and that's a they've never won in anybody's lifetime. Period. Oh, never they've won never period. won the Stanley yeah. Cup. They've been okay. to the finals three times. They lost those first three. So it's it's a little bit of fun history lesson. They they had an expansion, a big expansion in like the late 60s in hockey. But they put all the expanded teams. There's the original six team. They created another conference of the six expansion teams. And then the, you know, the, so an expansion team was basically guaranteed to make the finals because they only had each other to play. Yeah, and, until the finals. Okay. Um, and the St. Louis Blues were the most successful of those expansion teams. Who they were made some the finals of the other ones? three times in a row. Um, I think that must have been when the LA Kings came in. Um, the Vancouver Canucks might have come in at that point. Um, this is not a test. You're, you're doing yeah, fantastic. No, anyway. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember now. <laughs> Maybe the uh, Minnesota North Stars. <laughs> not sure. Anyway, no. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm butchering that part of it. But yeah, anyway. So were the, were the Bruins the big favorites coming into this series? I would say only slight favorites. Only slight. Um, it's hockey. I mean, they what have the... home ice advantage, so that right. gives confers a bit of a fa- a, a favorite. Um, but they were. I, I would have called this series close, and I still still call this series close. Wait, I, if they were minus one sixty to start. Matty yeah. tells us minus one sixty. Yeah. right. And when you correct for the over round, that's a home field advantage, basically. So that's basically just home ice. All right. Yeah. So one uh, zero to open that one. Yeah. What is going on with the NBA? It feels like about two weeks ago the the Raptors cleaned out the Bucks, and we've just been waiting for this finals. To it's start. not that long ago, actually. It feels it was like it five or six days. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's crazy because the Bucks were after the first two games. The Bucks were just going to walk all over. Them. Them, they, their odds were high, and then and the Bucks basically either they collapsed or we, we they were completely like ten to one, nine to one, ten to one, exactly. Like or, or we well, part of that is being up two to nothing, but but our whole valuation of the Bucks probably was really way off. This could be a classic overreaction. I mean, I think we, <clears throat> to a certain extent, forgot that home court advantage is pretty important in the NBA, especially Toronto seems to play very yep. well at so home. You, and so, you, so, so, But also you should discount Milwaukee's first Yeah, that's game. right. I mean, a, a yeah. 2-0 lead looks, if you forget about this home court advantage thing, looks very impressive, you know? And, and, and you're willing to kind of interpret that as like a real serious team advantage right. as opposed to just the home court part. Is home court going to be enough to give the Raptors this series? So this is, I this do is, not think so. Do the Warriors this finally is, go down? But we've got some interesting kind of, you know, there's this is divergent stuff city, the by the way. So this yeah. is a classic um, this is a classic potential opportunity depending on who you want to believe. Vegas is putting it easily in the Warriors camp. You know, seven series to series in the in the low seventies, somewhere around that, depending on how you, again how you work the over out. I mean, you can quite, quite quote the odds. So plus two thirty on the Raptors turns into a thirty percent probability of their winning, but they're not paying you at they're paying you not at thirty percent because they think that's what it is. That's some somewhat over than that. So if you drop it down and look at the other side, there minus two eighty comes out to about seventy six percent, seventy four percent or so for the for the Warriors based on the for on the odds right now. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? Well, the models. I mean, if you just look at the models, and we don't know how to do models with NBA because the regular season is so, you know, what Different. the hell is going on and with all the injuries, of course, and the fact that they don't play as hard as they should. So the models are suggesting that the teams are much more much more close to even. And and given the, the fact that Toronto so Elo, has... like the 538 the model 538, suge- has... Well, 538 tries to adjust for playoffs. Yeah, so yeah. 538 has a very complicated model. And in this actually, what's interesting about this is, is the convergence of the different ways of modeling, right? So the 530 traditional way is, is essentially looking at who you play, who you beat, and, and, and just working that all out. And then making some adjustments for injuries and stuff like that. Now, there, there are playoff models much more sophisticated. But they also input the standard... The other way of doing modeling is to look at sort of build up from the players, right? So you either look at the team level and then kind of drill down, or you start with the players and kind of build up. And they produce a fairly consistent, close set of, uh, of comparisons. I mean, these, these two teams look close by the modeling approach. Really? Quite close. And in fact... Even in ELO? Even... Well, adjusted ELO. Yes, of course, because the, the Toronto had a better record over the season. Yeah, Sure. And and the Warriors yeah. haven't played good competition coming in. I mean, the, no so one thought the, so much the, of. The, you're saying the question is, the models don't capture kind of an NBA team's potential because they only have to do so much in the in the regular season. And that's they step up in the. Playoffs. That's right. So if you if it's actually if you build down from the team level, the Toronto looks great. If you build up from the player level, well, 
it's it's hard. I mean, I don't know how to say it other than the fact that the models are diverging. So maybe, maybe this is an opportunity. You might ask yourself, what's the public doing in this situation? Are they loving warriors? Because who doesn't love the warriors? And that seems to be, and that helps you figure out that maybe Vegas is is giving out odds in the low seventies because the the public really wants to bet on the on on the warriors, and they they they'll the take case, crappy right? odds because the public wants to do things it so ha- badly. It has to be in that direction. So this might be an opportunity for us. We've t- I think we've done actual bets based on divergence between the markets and the stats twice in our in our tenure at least this at least in my memory once once with the, the Clemson Alabama the other one was the horse race which we won <laughs> right, <laughs> right right and uh, and I think this might be an opportunity right here this might be an opportunity to get some money down on Toronto it's it's, it's a wonderful question that sports betters always quants anyway I have to deal with is like okay am I am and is the market inefficient and I've mm-hmm. got the goods here or am I missing something? Because modelers know their models are incomplete. I mean, by right. definition, a model is a simplification. So you wonder if you have if you're missing something that the market actually has. Right, and we don't see the book. The book, of course, is the, the proportion of money on each side of these bets. If you saw it, that could give you some some indication. Because, and but you can also track the movement of the lines and see what that's saying. Um, this is a time for a sports betting expert who bets on basketball to potentially add some insight. Well, um, I want to say the Raptors are only fifty one percent tonight. So yes, tomorrow night. When, when does it start? Tomorrow? Um, yes. Yeah, <clears throat> why, why start? The, why start tomorrow? We could wait till. Well, July. that's about right. I mean, the home uh, field the, advantage the, is about fifty-eight percent. So calling them fifty-one percent thinks that we think the Warriors are are substantially better team, and the, mm-hmm. over the course of a series, they shouldn't they shouldn't be winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Warriors should win. So what about Kawhi Leonard? Is can it's, we we always want these we want these players who can. Who can step in at the key moments? Who can carry a team? This seems to be critical in the NBA. Yeah, yeah. And he seems to be one of the handful of guys who can really can do. Right. That. He has telekinetic powers to make a bouncing ball go in. I just, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, I think in in this NBA, especially a t- as a, against a team as deep and as rich as the Warriors. Uh, rich in ability, I guess. One, they one, the one guy's money. one guy's not going to be enough. Yeah, I mean, I think you can just kind of, I, I mean, or other people will have to step up. You know, because, you know, the Warriors are are, are well-coached and, and defensively oriented enough to just take Kawhi Leonard, I think, out of it. Okay. And so who is going to step up and kind of fill that void? I mean, they've got that really good point guard whose name's escaping me because I'm just waking up. But, he, I mean, he would be an example of somebody that could be the go-to guy. Got it. You know, they, I saw stats here from, from, from Matt about Kawhi's Game 6 Score. He's twenty-seven points, seventeen rebounds, seven assists. That's a pretty good stat line. Yeah. But they said the last player in the NBA with those kinds of numbers and a playoff series clinching win was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's numbers in ninety-one um, series clinching win. They don't. We don't know which series it is, but thirty-eight points, nineteen rebounds, wow, and seven assists. I don't remember Jordan as being that kind of rebounder. That's ridiculous. Nineteen. Thirty-eight points, nineteen rebounds. Oh, you got to miss that guy. Uh, okay, what about what? What else? You mentioned baseball, of course. Little baseball. So I, my understanding, I need to be caught up. But my understanding is, you're so happy. Yankees are out big yeah. in the Yankees ALEs. are killing they're, it right they're, now. They're, they're, Yankees are out. Most Just, of their superstar players. Yeah, despite having all these guys on the DL. Yeah, they're running it up. They're running it up in the in the ALEs. They are. are okay. Yeah. They are, and and it, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's home it helps run when match. you play the Orioles uh, oh, fifteen times well, already I, this season. Yeah. Okay. So this is the kind of thing this that Fangraphs would get 
right? Yes. Right? yes. So if you're going to forecast the future, you have to discount a team's They're playing another 15 times more. I mean, well, no, not quite that, but it's, it's a lot. I mean, the, the, O's, the O's are terrible. I mean, this is the way – this is the problem that's shaking out in baseball. You have the, the good teams who are really good, and you have a bunch of teams who are really bad. And, and there, some of them are in the American League East. Yeah. And it just is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But right now, baseball is kind of almost I, – I, I guess you could call it – it's kind of by uh, – by the chalk, right? I mean, I think yes, most of the teams that are kind of leading their divisions are the ones we kind of predicted would be. I mean, the big surprise, I think, is Minnesota. Minnesota, the Minnesota Twins are something like 10 oh, games out in front well, of the AL they Central. They 20 games above 500. They're 20 games yeah. above 500. And the we, A's are rocking. 10-game winning streak. Yeah, I mean, the A's always do this, right? But we can't figure out. out why. I mean, well, you look at their roster and you think, how on earth are they doing this? And this Did, happens every year. Well, I think Joey Bean's really good at what he does, He's as it turns really out. <laughs> that's you know? impressive. That's, that's, every year I'm, this uh, happens. It's super impressive. But I, and I, I, I mean, again, this age, I mean, the question I would love to have answered, I don't think we'll, we'll ever know it, but what would – does is Billy Bean's brilliance? Because I think he has a long enough history that he really is brilliant with a small market team. Would – like if you gave him a big market team, would he be as brilliant? Would that team just Who be off know, the charts? I mean, maybe he we would win know, a playoff series. We probably series. will never know, but I, I'm just always intrigued. Whereas, you know, he's clearly got this eye for kind of these money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously the original money ball was kind of under his, his tenure yeah. at Oak, o- Oakland. Um, he's got this eye for kind of these like small market arbitrages. Would would he would that that sort of transfer? Would he find the same kind of arbitrages as a big market team or not? I don't know. It, it's, what, it's an intriguing question. I, I'd be relatively optimistic. He seems yeah. to have been resourceful. I mean, consider the style that he's pursued over his tenure. I, mean, I don't even know where it is now, but he starts out kind of the money ball was this you know on base percentage thing and efficiency, and then when everybody else caught up on that and the economics of those players flipped and now those things are overvalued instead of undervalued, he went to a different style. So I think he's been relatively creative. I think he's been very creative in finding... Creative and adaptive. And adaptive, right, exactly, adaptive. So the the adaptation part of that and kind of the evidence-based drive underneath it I think would would lead me to be optimistic if he had a different set of constraints. So can we get behind a system where we just give like all the luxury tax money to Oakland for a few years? Like just make that <laughs> yeah, my God. a Let's big market like team just to see what would happen. Just for experimental purposes. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's easy for you to say, oh, with all your rings, your rings are falling off your fingers. Like we, we can live without more championships <laughs> in Boston. Why bother? Let's just spread it around a little bit. Yeah. The thing is, yeah. Uh, so it's a couple of things that did catch my eye in baseball that are reflective of some of the big sort of statistical changes is a greater emphasis on fielding and particularly at the catcher position. So the Yanks were in a tight game and their closer Chapman, who throws a hundred or so, was was trying to close out the game and he was a little wild. And he wasn't so wild that it was a disaster, but he was a little wild so that there's a couple walks and loading the bases with one run lead. And the Yankees backup catcher, Romine, their, their, their number one catcher is Sanchez, who he's got 17 home runs. He's there doing his he's thing. He's terrible defensively. But he's de- terribly though. defensively. And I actually wanted to give the save to Romine because he was pulling in strikes right at the edges that you just – that the umpire was giving him the call. And it's, it is right on the border. And you, you don't obviously don't have a counterfactual where he has a different catcher. But he was making these pitches that were just not in the strike zone – Look like they were. In the and you think zone. you can observe that watching the game? Well, if you observe it, you can certainly see that he's getting the pitch. 
Absolutely. That much you can say, yeah. That's absolutely <laughs> And happening. they have those visuals that show where, you know, approximately what part of the strike zone, you I, know, I get that, that but, but I get that, but the attribution of why. Oh, the, the catcher. So it's, the catcher. it's very hard to, to do, and, and I've actually written academic papers on the subject, and my essential conclusion is, yes, it exists, but no, it's not easy to measure and accurately um, uh, sort of assign the responsibility to the catcher. But if you watch this, and and I was watching it, he just somehow manages to make the ball that's out of the strike zone look like that's just where he was supposed to be. But you could, throw. I mean, <laughs> you you may not, I don't know what, uh, you, you would know better what the pitch FX current data looks like. Do you have, like, you know, catcher glove movement? No, we do not have catcher glove movement. Absolutely. Because that so, would be the thing. So the you, only thing we have is. At. So essentially, the way pitch framing is done in, in its better formulations is you basically find a, a pitch density. So you have the probability of a strike given where the pitch is thrown, the handedness of the, both the batter and the pitcher, which matters enormously. The umpire, because the umpires have different tendencies for, to call things, you want to control for that as well. And then, and, and in better formulations, you also control for the pitcher's name because because some pitchers get get better calls than others, and the and then you sort of look to see what is the extra strikes that they get or mm-hmm. losses that they get yeah. versus that, and it oh, seems oh, to be. Hold on, you left. You said they are your the models, the catchers, the, the model, how so, the catchers. That, you're yes. basically you're going to do all those as controls. You mentioned yes. six things, well, statistical your, controls. Those are yeah. controls, yeah. and then you're going to ask for catcher effects. Yes, basically you're going to ask. You're going to attribute any kind of extra strikes or balls. Beyond the expectation, based on based those on the six density. factors, and you're gonna, and, but in particular, you're going to ask whether there's reliable variation across, right. across so, catchers. Like, yeah. So it's so, interesting. Interestingly enough, so so Shane and I wrote a paper years ago evaluating fielding using a hierarchical Bayesian model, which we don't get into the technique, the the, the details of it, but it's exactly the model we use for pitch framing. Mm-hmm. Using essentially the density of pitches thrown as, as as opposed to the density of where the batted ball goes, it's exactly the same problem. That was essentially the the main idea to recognize these two are the, are essentially inverses of each other, and it's highly variable. But it seems to be a, a, a reliable effect, highly so, variable so, in the sense. So, if that, I want to know how good a third baseman is before I could actually see the, some details, this was you were first generation modeling of this stuff. We you're, were you're the, we the were. distribution of where the ball is hit, and yeah. you presumably need some kind of velocity or something. I'm just that's, yeah. that's what we didn't have. Okay, so but just yes. distribution, and yeah. you're going to ask, okay, for this area, this part of the distribution, the probability of this thing being out is something. So you have mm-hmm. a function of out as a as a that's know, right. outs as a function of the probability, and then you're going to say, okay, outs, you know, above and below expectation, and does that reliably differ by yeah. the position players? Mm-hmm. Bingo. Okay, mm-hmm. that's it. That's neat. And that's the catcher. Neat. So you see these things in on paper or by computer, mm-hmm. if you will. And the, but it's very very amazing to actually watch it happen. And these balls were at, were genuinely out of the strike zone. Particularly, I mean, they were they were darting fast pitches, and they were out of the strike zone. Now I don't have. From a p-value perspective, given this one particular observation, no, you'd say, well, come on, this could just be chance variation. Yeah. How do I know? But the it's, data on Romine suggests that he's very good say, at this. That's, yeah. the, the data, the priors yeah. on this guy is that he is mm-hmm. he's helpful. Got it. All right. So um, speaking of this kind of ex- ex- extreme performance in baseball, something I read over the weekend that I didn't appreciate. I mean, I'm not enough of a baseball guy to know, but Bill Buckner died over the weekend. Mm-hmm. So yes. he and he had he had some. I think it was brain issues. He had a, an early kind of onset uh, yeah, dementia. So he was only sixty something when he died. Sixty nine. Yeah. yeah. People, of course, if you're the casual baseball fan. Even casual baseball fans know who Bill Buckner was. He was the first baseman at the time. He wasn't a lifer first baseman, but he was playing first base in the 
in the NL championship series. AL. Oh, no, the World Series. It was the, oh, it it was was the World, World Series, series. in 1986. Oh, six. Six. You know why I did that? Because that was the year the Mets and the Astros went so long. They had some of these 17-inning games with Mike Scott pitching in the, in the, in the NLCS. So if it's, yeah. the, if it's I, Texas, you know what's going on. Is that what we're hearing? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was a sophomore in college. I remember this year very well. So the, I remember watching this game at, at Schultz's Beer Garden in Austin. I remember exactly watching this, this era happen. But Bill Buckner is the one who the ball dribbles through his leg. And, and as a result, the Mets um, lose. Yes, and let, let's, let's actually reflect mm-hmm. on an old Moneyball um, actual show. We had Mookie Wilson on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, he explained to me that it was not Bill Buckner's fault at all. Yeah. Right, that he's right. extraordinarily fast, which he is, and the ball was a slow roller up the line. It was extremely he close play, and that he would have either scored, he wouldn't have gotten him at first, and right. that the fact that Buckner, who is a fairly, you know, he's not a terrible fielder, um, this was a natural thing to have happened. It wasn't an incredible gaffe. It was a very, that. yeah, it was a very <laughs> iconic moment and a very obvious error by Buckner, but I think it's, he, he is certainly, everybody can agree he's been disproportionately vilified <laughs> so, for that given the yeah. various factors in that game that like you right. know I mean Chiraldi pitching Mookie Wilson's speed right. the Mets could have easily won that game anyway and it was game 6 it wasn't actually game 7 right 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 well the disproportionate thing that I want to emphasize at the moment is the rest of his career oh my goodness he, he had an amazing like 21 career years. 22 years he played in the major leagues and and he was one of the best hitters in mm-hmm. long stretches of that time so there was this interesting stat that the, the last full day of his life 16 major leaguers struck out at least three times during the game. Yeah. So they go up to the plate, they strike out three times out of maybe three at-bats, maybe four at-bats. Buckner played 22 seasons. He never struck out three times in a game. Yeah. Now, understand, you have to era-adjust strikeouts because we're in a strikeout high, a high strikeout era. Even but, if you're a 10% strikeout guy, which is low, your probability of doing that three times in a game is over a course of a 22-year career, is extremely high. Yeah, right. It's an incredible statistic. It's an amazing, amazing statistic. So so tell me about Buckner as a hitter, because there are some hitters in that era that I might not be surprised they didn't strike out a lot, like Wade Boggs. Wade Mm -hmm. Boggs didn't strike out. Don Mattingly didn't strike out. Contact guys. Yeah. Yeah. So was Buckner a contact guy? Mm -hmm. I see. This was a different style of play. I mean, if you watch baseball, and I've been watching a lot of it, it's a different game. I mean, it is all about the long ball. Um, it's speaking of you know fielding densities that we were talking about earlier. It used to be when a player hit a hard shot up the middle, you'd be like, right, base hit. That's a grounder to the to the shortstop or second right. baseman, yeah. and a dribbler to the right side almost always is a single. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> the, 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 con- the contact hitter has become a little bit less favored by current sort of you know the current state of the Style, game. Yeah, because it's going to come you know, Be the essentially the position. You know, we've gotten. Analytics has led to really, really optimal positioning of of the fielders in response to that, and and yeah, I mean it will probably change again. It'll it'll you know there'll be see. a counter adjustment. Maybe yeah. maybe they'll actually alter the rules of the game a little bit. Hope not. Um, but <laughs> they're experimenting with that right now at the Atlantic League about uh you know yep. the rule to kind of that you always have to have two fielders on either side yeah. of second base. So mm-hmm. they 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 have or at least experimenting with restricting the shift. I agree. I don't think it's the right way to kind of address. I think, this I think we're going to see. But. I think the contact hitter is going to come back. The spray hitter will come back. Right now, I mean, all the yeah. emphasis at almost at every level is elevate and power. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you're seeing that in the results. I mean, the, the, the number of teams that have more home runs that are on pace to break home run records is is extraordinary. And yeah. this is, I mean, this is definitely the emphasis. And of course, everybody talks about the ball being juiced. It's not that I don't think it's juiced. There's about four or five factors, including slightly lower seams, um, that add extra elevation and extra distance and less. Like, air I, I would be hard pressed to say who's the best contact hitter in the game right now. 
I mean, if it was a couple of years ago, we could have easily said Ichiro and be done with it. But <laughs> yeah. um, now, yeah. uh, uh, now that Ichiro, well, there are retired, some hitters. There's a couple of hitters who like never strike out. Um, there's this. There's uh, who is this guy that the. the um, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. That's the problem. But there's a couple. They're famous for not striking out. But none yeah. of the major, you know, terrific hitters in the in the leaderboards yeah. are those who don't strike out. So let, tell me about Kristen Yelich. So Yelich's talking about home runs. Let's take let's let's glorify hitters instead of talking about their weaknesses. So 20th home run last night and only his 45th game, which is by far a record for the Brewers. But he's also the first player to hit. 20 and 45 games since Josh Hamilton. Remember Splashy Josh Hamilton <laughs> back in 2012? So what's the story with Yelich? And by the way, good morning to Eric Bradlow, who just walked in the room. Good yeah, morning, guys. The story with Yelich, I mean, the story with everyone is is, is there's a, just a ton of people hitting between 12 and 20 home runs, which 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 projects out to something like mid-30s to 50. Even 20 would, is, if you take a linear projection, it would be about 60, but we would have to shrink back down. So the real question with the eligible, he hit 48 or 52 or in that neighborhood. These are incredible numbers, the kind of numbers we would see every five years back in the 70s and 80s. And now you see 20, 25 guys in that zone. Now we're yeah. not seeing, I mean, we don't have, we're not seeing the 50, 60, 70 of the, the bonds. There hasn't the been a 50 in a while. There hasn't been a 50. Uh, no, um, just last year. Well, Sanchez, Stanton hit fifty. Stanton hit 50, 50. fifty-eight. I think. I know, but written. one player. I'm yeah. just saying. I, yeah. I think right now you give me the over/under on Yelich and fifty. No, I would take oh, under on that. One. I mean, I'm trying to decide if I would go forty-five. I'm trying to decide which one I would go. I'd <laughs> yeah. probably go under forty-five, even at even, this point. Even if you, I think that's uh, that. I haven't actually done the calculation, but that seems about fifty. Seems about right. He's got twenty, and we're about third of the year in. Yeah, that's a lot of homers for a third of the year. In. I know, but even if you say to yourself, let's say he's really a 40 home run guy, and he's just off to a good start, you would predict, what, 26 home yeah. runs in the rest, so that gets you to 46, yeah. and there's no evidence that he's actually a, a 40, 40 home, home run, run guy. guy. How many did he hit last year? <sighs> well, mid-30s about. Mid-30s. Yeah. I mean, he was the MVP. Okay. Yeah, so. yeah. 36. 36. So the baseball deal, this is apparently a real thing. So AAA is using MLB baseballs, and yeah. all of a sudden AAA home runs are home up. runs are going up. I mean, I think it's I think there's a bunch of factors, but I believe the the consensus is is that the seam is so ever so slightly lower, which means makes for ever so slightly air, less air resistance, and that adds could add maybe. And 10 also, feet. I mean, I think we're started probably seeing some selection bias. In AAA, like the home runs are increasing probably at all the levels because we are, yep. again, in this generation where we're selecting for these elevated, you, you know, all the de- player no, develop if, now is, development now is focused on getting the ball, keeping the ball out of no, but if the you field listen of to, play. If you listen to what Kay just said, though, this is what we in marketing, and not just marketing, economics, etc., look for all the time. This kind of, let's call it natural experiment. It's not like someone went in and said, okay... We're going to change the baseballs here for the purpose of increasing, you know, if it was marketing, it would be demand or sales or something like that. We have this natural experiment. We have a before-after where they had the old baseballs, the new baseballs. Let's assume this is what we call an exogenous shock. In other words, someone just inserted them. We can now do a diff analysis. What's the rate before and after? I think this is one of those unique situations where it's not an experiment. I'm not saying it's an experiment because they're not randomizing some teams mm-hmm. to get the base, the MLB <clears throat> balls and others. But we do have a before-after yep. study, and we can control for weather. You could control for which parks they're going in. I think it's a great opportunity if you get that data to say, 
are the baseballs actually and, flying and, and, farther? And I think baseball, I, I mean, again, what they're doing in the Atlantic League with the actual experimentation, like oh, they're lowering the, the mound halfway through the season. And they're li- making the distance from the mound, to the, from, the pitchers, from the pitcher's mound to the, uh, the rubber to home plate two feet more, which is, which is, I think, a crazy thing to try. But the problem with the, I mean, it's, this is an experiment, but it's not exactly the experiment we want. We've always known that the minor league balls are different and the NCAA balls are different. And there's a cr- terrific study in baseball perspectives that Alan Nathan uh, produced. I think he did it in a dome um, and kept all the right. conditions and he had a whole yeah, different pile Tropicana of balls. Field, right? Tropicana Field, right? Tropicana Field. But the real question is are how much different are the major league baseballs today from the major league baseballs of, say, three years ago? Mm-hmm. The major league mm-hmm. balls, which have always been more juiced, if you will, than the, than, the, than the minor league balls. And that's the question from which there seems to be still a little bit of ambiguity because of the confounding factors. So we had Alan Nathan on our show. He came, he came to Penn in the fall. Um, and uh, he, he's the sort of the physicist for to the MLB. He's like, he, he's like almost he's almost like guest zero for this show. He might have been a guest on he the might very have been. first show. Mm-hmm. One of the very earliest guests. Because right? you think about a name who does statistics in baseball, and this is a guy who's been doing it forever. Why would this be hard to reproduce? Why couldn't you? I mean, let's assume they've got video or something that they can use. Uh, they can data record, let's call it the swing planes of players from three years ago. Why can't they set up a, a pitching robot to pitch the ball? And modern balls, as opposed to what happened then, they could reproduce the swings and just see what what would actually happen. The, the com- that, that would work, but the complexity is the ball-to-ball variation is pretty darn big. Yeah. That's the that's the. Well, problem. I want to get the expectation right. right. I'm not so saying there won't be a high right, variance. So you have to do this a lot to get the right Absolutely. answers. Absolutely. Uh, but I think they're pretty conclu- conclusive on the basic fact that at a ball coming off the bat at the same miles per hour today like in, say, 2019, goes further, travels further than the, than the same mile-per-hour ball three years ago. Really interesting. So many factors all going in the same direction. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, Adi. I'm really surprised you had that much to say about baseball. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shocking. All right, fellas. That has wait, been till, the, wait till September and October, man. We got some other sports to talk about. We're going to do some of that. Rolling into the first guest segment, we are delighted to welcome back to the show David Epstein. David is the author of a brand-new book. It's called Range... Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He is, as some of you know, the author of, a few years ago, New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene. Adi Weiner, big fan. We're going to hear yes. Adi's why Adi loves this book so much. He was an investigative reporter before then with a number of publications and has had a terrifically interesting life. Fantastic. We can, Without even having seen the book in detail, I know we can recommend it. He's always interesting to read. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Where are you calling from this morning, David? Uh, Manhattan. Manhattan. It's uh, not Brooklyn. I thought every writer's in Brooklyn. Come on. That is that is true. I was in Brooklyn before, and I think I could see like half of the authors I knew, like their Wi-Fi networks named after themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So your your book just came out. You must be doing a lot of publicity right now. How's your life? How's your life right now, David? It's it's. Busy. I mean, it, th- this book I got to say got out of the gate faster than I expected. What does that mean? Um, so, so it, it's just gotten really like there's been you know so reviews in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR like all appeared yesterday. Okay. Um, okay. Basically, at the same time, you know, and, and the, at the CBS Morning Show um, had me on. Uh, I, ha- I have a four month old, so um, 
busy times. Uh, but but no, it's great. I mean, I didn't expect it to to start this fast. So the so, week has gotten very hectic very quickly in a very good way. So David, this is Eric Bradlow. Um, since I'm a marketing professor, you just brought up a related analytics marketing topic. What do we know about the impact of reviews on book sales? I mean, there's been lots of academic studies of this. I know it makes every author feel good when it's well reviewed, but like, do you know like? If the New York Times likes it, is that more important than you're going on a book tour or just distribution, marketing spend by your publisher? What do we know about that? I really do not. And and I try to actually, in some ways, stay away from uh, certain things. Like I work as hard as I can on marketing, but certain types of numbers, you know, I, I try not to like um, – too early fall into some of like the McNamara fallacy where I'm like focusing on, on the measurables because I'm, I don't think anybody's really that sure what matters exactly. So for my last book for the sports gene, that actually got reviewed in the New York Times in the science section, which I think was pretty helpful. And I sort of like noticed a bounce. Mm. Um, normally, I, I really don't, I really don't know. And I'm not sure. I think it's such a moving target with the way social media is. And I think now newsletter recommendations are important that that I'm not sure anybody really knows at the moment. So you sort of try to, try to diversify. David's got a, he's got a considered philosophical position on ignoring the numbers. It's not because he doesn't like numbers or, or doesn't, he's like, his position is like, don't really know. You'll get distracted. Or it's hard to know what these numbers, you know, you, you, you would normally look to history for what these numbers mean, but given that the, that particular industry is changing, well, all industries are changing so rapidly. It's, that, it's hard to know. That one more than most. Well, well David, most. David, this is Adi. Uh, I have to say, I bought the sports gene twice um, without reading a review. So really twice is one, one of the f- f- only books I think I can think of that have ever you no, you can read the same one yeah, more than once. I, I you don't the, have to do that. I, I needed for, the Kindle copy. No, 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 no you can't. You no, to. no, yeah, sorry, sorry. I don't no, the, the, forget the ex- what I said. The excuse is I first time bought it, bought the, the the actual paperback version, and then I bought the Kindle version so I could carry so, it around. So, Adi, tell us why you like this. So, to, first, David. Oh, I'm going emba- I'm gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass our author. Da- David, when did the book come out? <laughs> the Sports Gene? It came out... Um, Six years ago, so so this new book is out a mere six years after my agent told me only an idiot would let it be five years before you. <laughs> well, clearly you're not suffering, so this is fine. But let's before we get to range, let's hear a little bit from Adi and unsolicited, un- unsolicited. Okay, so one of the things I, re- I really enjoy that first of all, you're a wonderful storyteller, and and when it comes to books, it's that's an extremely important aspect of it. But it also collects lots and lots of data in a in a very compelling way. So this, I never knew anything about the impact of genetics in particular on sports, and it's, it's actually quite varied and interesting, and you really give both sides of the story, um, although there's, there's plenty of evidence on that clearly that, that genetics is an extremely important aspect of, uh, of performance, but it is certainly not the whole story, not even close to the whole story, and the way it, it, it tells is, is very interesting. Well, I'm actually very interested to read the, the next book, Range, which I did start last night, um, and I obviously couldn't finish it, <laughs> but again, Again, you have that, but I, I'm imagining that this is a much harder topic because the sports gene is—I mean—that's measurable. So range is all about, you know. I guess the, the, the substance of it, and I'd actually like you to tell us about it, is is um, what's better to be specialized or to be broad. But these are things that are much harder to measure. Yeah, or, or yeah, I mean, the outcomes that you're looking at must just be harder to quantify in general. I mean, you hit something on the head there. So with, with the sports scene, I thought it was tough because sort of when I was going around to publishers, they said, so you're going to come down nature and nurture, basically. Um, and I sort of said, well, I've, I'm not really sure, but I'm sure it's some of both. And, and the truth is, it's, 
you know, it can be different mixtures to get to the same outcome in many in many cases. That that's sort of that that story I tell in the sports scene called the tale of two high jumpers, where two guys get to the same place via very very different uh, uh, nature and nurture paths. But this range was a much more formidable challenge in this sense because I look at this this issue of how broad or specialized to be, and I think that's something that's very important to a lot of people, maybe to everybody that we consider, at least implicitly, probably usually explicitly at some point. Um, and it's a, an amorphous topic that people usually talk about only with intuition. And so my feeling was kind of, can I take this, you know, with, with the sports gene, I was saying this nature versus nurture in sports that we all talk about like crazy, can I make this conversation a little more interesting and productive mm. and a little more grounded in evidence, even though I'm not the final word? And, and it's sort of the same thing for range. Can I make this this discussion that's important to a lot of people that we have a little more productive and a little more interesting, but it's really difficult because even, you know, even the, the, the classification of, of generalist and specialist is matters of degree and semantics in, in right. many ways. Right, right. It's, it's um, not like genes, so, which you have them or you don't. That's right, that's right. So, there, so there, there are parts of the book like where I talk about studies of inventors and, and specialists make contributions and, gen, and, and they're usually measured by you know, the number of different patent classes they've worked across in their career. So the specialists will drill down into like one or two. The, the generalists will work across many different um, technological classes as classified by the patent office. And um, you can see that they make different types of contributions. So some are better in certain areas and some are better in others. But the ones that are the best are, are the, the sort of what's called the polymaths, where they kind of start in an area and instead of drilling down into that area, they, they sort of sacrifice a little breath to, be, to become broad, even broader than the generalist inventors eventually. But they still started anchored in an area. So in that chapter, you know, I kind of go away from my own subtitle and say, like, you know, the polymaths were the ones who, who, who were the best. And so, you know, I see that as them adding range when they could have just been deeper. But, but the just broad people only don't come out as the best in that, even though they make contributions, right? Did, so did your editor goes on? I kind of try to. Did your like, editor lose a bloody battle on that one? I mean, they must have hated your. You're going against the subtitle of the book. No, because well, so the subtitle book didn't exist when I was writing this stuff. So when I pitched the proposal, I, 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 my editor will probably be angry if I share this program me saying this stuff, but. Um, when I was pitching the proposal, I called it Roger versus Tiger. It sort of came out of, after the sports team, I was invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to debate Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and, you know, he's very clever, and I didn't want to get embarrassed. Um, <laughs> so I tried to anticipate his arguments, and I figured he'd have to argue for early specialization in sports. So I just went and looked at the available data, and it turned out that the athletes who go on to become elite have a so-called sampling period early. They play a variety of sports, gain general skills, learn about their interests and abilities, and delay specialization uh, until after peers who, who plateau at lower levels. And now there are some studies that match athletes for ability level of a certain age and track them over several years and find that the ones who, who do more diversity sort of in their early teen years improve more. And so I, I call this the Roger versus Tiger problem. You know, so Tiger Woods, obviously, early specialization. Roger Federer did, did some of everything, delayed specialization which one was the norm, and it was, it was the Roger uh, path. And I wanted to see, originally I wanted to see when should you be a Roger and when should you be a Tiger, and the proposal was called Roger versus Tiger, and that's why the intro is called Roger versus Tiger. And I was going to examine that in different domains, but, it, but I started finding the, the Roger side of things much less covered in any other books and, and sort of more interesting and, and more ubiquitous. And so that's sort of the framework I was starting with, and then mm -hmm. at the end you kind of say, like, well, you know, what's a good title? Mm -hmm. um, but that, that was the approach I went into it. So, um, you know, and, I, and, and so I think when you see the book, it's sort of 
little messier. So, David, this is... Yeah, David, this is Eric Brother. First of all, I'm so glad you talked about the matching component of it, because one of the classic arguments you would have would be, well, of course, the greater athletes can afford to specialize. So, first of all, thank you for bringing up to our audience here on Wharton Moneyball the importance of controlling for overall ability in this, because I think that's really important, because otherwise you could get self-selection. Um, one of the things we always talk about, though, is do you look at the length of the career? So it's not just whether their peak performance, this gets back to Shane's earlier point about how it's hard to measure, do generalists just tend to stay with sports longer? Do they have less burnout? Do they have less injuries? Do you do you look at not just, let's call it... Can they adapt, I guess, to changing times? Yeah, what, what, what do you actually see and, and how do you talk about it? Yeah, I haven't looked at, at total length of career so much because there, there are some studies on that, but they, I think... Um, often suffer from some kind of biased selection problems, basically, the, the way they work. Um, but so I tried to look at, um, like, injury rates, right? So so some of, in youth athletes, it's a doctor named Niru Jayanti ran a really neat longitudinal study where he looked at uh, the likelihood of um, youth athletes suffering, like, in a, what he called an adult-style overuse injury. So this could be, you know, torn ligaments, stress fracture in the back, something that, that would... Tommy John surgery in a, in a 17-year-old, for example. Right, right, right. And so something that would... And Tommy John, the first one you have, a lot of people get back, but that's the second one, not so much. Um, and so things that could not only affect their athletic career, but, but their, their life. And the main predictor was specialization. So someone who was doing the sport nine months a year and not other sports. And one of the interesting things was he found that there was seemed to be some protective effect of playing multiple sports. So it wasn't just about total hours in sports. Um, so the, the kids that were doing nine months of one sport but were also doing some other sports at the same time seemed to have some protective effect. Right. I started to see that sort of trend. So like some of the coolest data is like Cirque du Soleil, um, their physiologist, a guy named Dean Krillars. I mean, they have a lot of Olympic athletes, former Olympic athletes, uh, and they're incredible performers. And looking at, at some of this kind of data, they decided to have some of their performers learn the basics of several other performers' um, disciplines, not because they expected them to perform them, but just to see, you know, if it would make them fresher, if it would have an effect on injury rates. Wow. They compared their injury rates to Canadian Gymnastics. It's a Canadian company. And so this is, you're taking time away from these people who have to do like 100 shows a year, right? right? So that's precious time, and right. trying something else. And it dropped their injury rates by like a third. Really? So now huh. they've, they've standardized that, and they've moved it into the, the National Circus School, where they, where they draw a lot of their talent from. And I don't know, there's a lot of theories about why that seems to make people less fragile, and I can fit lots of stories in my head for why that would work. Give us a couple, give us a couple. You know, I, I think when you do these re repetitive types of movements, like you can see this in runners, right, where if you go from, uh, like when I was, I was a nationally competitive runner, and then for a little while when I was injured to stay in shape, I started doing some jujitsu and realized that I had like no muscles in my hips whatsoever because <laughs> you have to use your hips a lot in jujitsu. Right. And turned out that this problem that I was having um, in my knee was really originating in my hip. And your weakness in your but, hips. Yeah. So can That's I, right. so one, one of the things we've done here at Penn is we've invested in our athletic system in a, a fairly expensive system, which is designed to measure your, the athlete's imbalances. 
So they get on a force plate and they jump up and down and they try yeah, to yeah. determine whether or not their different components of their of their musculature is imbalanced because if an athlete gets over overdeveloped in one area. So the classic example would be a say a, you know a, a football player who runs backwards all the time, right? So they're defensive yeah. lineman or something. Yeah. And then they have to move forward and they can get injured because they're they're the muscles that move forward are actually quite different than the ones that move backwards. So they measure this and then if there's an imbalance that that, that seems to arise based on the measurements, they put them in a very specific training um, classification in order to determine whether or not they, you know, to bring them back to, to equilibrium. And do, I, I mean, I assume Penn has multi-sport athletes, or at least athletes oh, yes. that have experience in multiple sports. Do Are they well, less imbalanced? You, well, I've just I've been negotiating to get all this data. We oh. not only have all the data from the, all the athletes, we have the ones who didn't choose to do it, the ones who've done it, and we have insurance payments on their, on their, on their, on their, on their injuries. So wow. we have an immense amount, and the preliminary data seems to be strongly suggestive that it certainly has brought down the insurance claims. The problem, of course, and as all of this is, the variance is enormous. So it's it, the to determine whether or not this is actually the causal effect is is still some time off. We're talking to David yeah, Epstein. I, I David is the author of a brand new book. It's called Range: Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Of course, David had a very successful book six years ago called The Sports Chain. You can follow David on Twitter at David Epstein. One of his victories in life is having the Twitter handle at David Epstein. You can follow, <laughs> you can follow him there. So we're talking about the injury prevention aspect of this. What about just getting into the right sport, the information you gain from sampling broadly? What, how big a factor is that? I think, I think it's, a, it's a huge factor. Um, and I think that so, so yeah, I, I think, and I think we're going the wrong in the wrong direction on some of those things. So I was just looking at statistics, right? So athletes typically don't you don't intuit your skills and interests necessarily all that well before you actually try some things. That's not unique and, to athletes. <laughs> that's right. That's not unique to athletes. So later in the book, I write about that more in in sort of a career matching sense. But okay. Um, that, that we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. You have to actually right. do stuff and reflect on it because your your introspection is constrained by your your roster of previous experiences. Basically. Right, right. And um, so I was just looking at the UEFA uh, U seventeen twenty nineteen championships. Well, I need uh, to know what UEFA. What is UEFA? Uh, it's it's a uh, European soccer okay. um, uh, league. The U seventeen championships. So okay. like you know the biggest competition for U um, seventeen soccer in the world. Basically, got it. Got it. And um, I was looking for the relative age effect data, you know, so this, this finding this shows up in youth sports that uh, you have this overabundance of athletes who were born in the first couple months of yeah. whatever the selection year is. Right, right, and, right. And because the coaches interpret, you know, at age eight or whatever when they're doing selection, the kids that are, you know, nine, ten, eleven months older are actually much more mature and the sure. coaches keep that for, for talent. Gladwell and, loves this, I think. I, and Yep, yep. And as selection has gotten earlier and earlier and earlier, this has been exacerbated. So at these youth right. championships, 47% of all the competitors were born in January, February, and March. Wow. 6% in the last three uh, months of the year. Right, right. And that is, it, and it's getting worse. And I think the reason it's getting worse is because selection in many cases is getting earlier. And the earlier it goes, the more you just exacerbate that relative age effect. And right. You don't end up giving people a chance. To, to figure out who they are and what they can do and what their best sport is, because if they even want to be in, in any pipeline in the beginning, they have to they have to specialize so early that they don't even get to, to see what they're good at. And the, mm-hmm. 
and the coaches might not even get to see because they deselect them before they've even developed it all. So I think the earlier we push for specialization and selection, the less likely you get the right person in the right sport or give them any chance to, to figure out to figure out who they are. And you know, like, and it's a, look at like like Brooks Kepka right now, who, who's who's lighting the golf. Please, world. please, anything you got on him is helpful. I mean, how I mean, can you explain that guy? <laughs> he played. He played a whole bunch of different contact sports. I guess he liked contact sports and got in. He was in a passenger in a car accident when he was like, I don't know, eleven or twelve or something like that, young, and injured his face. And his parents were like, "Do some non-contact sports for now." And that's the first time he played golf, and that you know worked out okay. Um, and so, although apparently he doesn't really like it that much, no. thinks the game is too <laughs> long, <laughs> too slow. Is that true? <laughs> yes. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. That's just- yeah. So, and and you know, other places like. Great Britain and Australia, which had these incredible home Olympic performances, one of the main changes they made was these so-called talent transfer programs where they would take athletes who had done a bunch of sports. They were good but not going to make the national team in the sport they specialized in. And before they kicked them out of the pipeline, they said, well, why don't you just try some other sports right, right. Um, you know, before we kick you out? And, and they got gold medalists out of those that – people in sports that they had not participated in at the previous Olympics. Yeah, so David, that was going to be my question for you, very much related to range, is that can you watch, have you have there been studies, can you watch someone at sport A or B and say, you know what, this could be somebody good at sport C, D, or E. How good is the, how observable are the skills that are needed and are... Or how, is, and how predictable is yeah. general generalization, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that pretty, I mean, when I was over in... Australia, looking at Aussie rules football, they were trying to do this with college with NCAA football players. Like they realized they want tight ends, and they're scouting certain ones. They've actually had some success um, with with pulling people over, but I still think it's it's largely unpredictable. But but what does seem to show up is mm. the number of hours that someone needs to become elite in a, in a so-called invasion sport. Like this is a sport where you need anticipatory skills. Mm. Um, so so sports where you know volleyball, basketball. Uh, football, where a ball or people are trying to get past each other, and things are happening in real time, and they happen so fast that we can't actually react to them. So, so the athletes, based on on practice, have learned how to pick up cues so they can react faster than mm-hmm. they would be able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it looks like when people have played a variety of attacking sports when they're younger, it, it lowers the number of hours they need to become elite in a new attacking sport that that they try. And so the Australian Institute of Sport has some cool data on that. It looks to me kind of like I, I was going to write a chapter in range on on language, but I decided not to because I thought, like, there's a lot of research about how being multilingual alters executive function, and actually I went through that and could not convince myself that any of it was legit. Interesting. Um, okay, I, helpful. I dropped that. Yep. So, so but, um, D- David, okay. I, I wanted to call your, you know, br- bring to our my colleagues in attention something from your book, which is interesting. You talk about Nobel Prize winners and other sort of superstar, you know, academics, and you point out that there seems to be an over- Abundance, an enormous overabundance of extraordinary talent or, or attention, maybe um, to a, a, another area completely different to their academic interest, and yeah. and you imply that somehow that's causal. I'd like to hear your your thoughts on that. Maybe you can explain to to everyone what what exactly you observed. I don't necessarily know if it's causal, but it, it certainly, I think, even if it's not causal, still goes against the the normal advice to just focus on what you're doing and not do other stuff, um, and. So this was, this was research, and there's, there's a couple lines of this research, but the one you're referring to is a study that looked at the avocations of scientists and found that scientists in general tend to um, have about the same number of hobbies as, as the general public, but nationally recognized scientists 
have are much more likely to have serious hobbies like writing, music playing, acting, uh, being magicians, mechanics, woodworkers, whatever. Um, and Nobel laureates are much, much more likely still. And there are a couple other studies I mentioned that are similar to that, where scientists and engineers who, who make creative contributions seem to also have creative hobbies. And one of the quotes I love about this from the Spanish Nobel laureate, Santiago Ramón y Cajal, the so-called father of modern neuroscience, where he says these, these innovative types are, are broader than you think, and to him who observes them from afar, it appears as though they are dissipating their energies when, in fact, they are strengthening and channeling them. Hmm. Beautiful and that, quote. that seems to come up sort of over and over in the book in Abby Griffin's research about serial innovators, which is later in the book, in Howard Gruber, what he calls the network of enterprise of creative achievers. And so it seems to me that a, a huge number of researchers are, are using different language to look at this same thing. And what they're finding is that what looks like these side hobbies often influence what these people actually end up doing, mm-hmm. the creative achievements they actually end up making. Mm-hmm. Um, the degree to which it's causal, I think is a little bit hard to say, but, yeah. but that's why I yeah, tried to include yeah. some of the... But again, I think it's... I think the standard notion would be it's a waste of time. Right. So I think it's, you know, it, it, it's not preventing them at the very least. Right, and then right, some of right. the studies that I tried to pick, like this comic book study, where I tried to pick this one specifically because so David, so much of sort of this... Oh, yeah. Dave, we're out of time. We want to hear what... You're, oh. you're taunting us with a comics book study on this causality, but we're going to have to let it go for another conversation. Listen, no I know it's a super busy time for you, Appreciate your taking, yeah. you know, when the New York Times and Today Show are calling, we really appreciate you giving us some time. Love the work. Love the skepticism you bring to it. Love the empiricism you bring to it. And wish you the best with the new book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, as always. Absolutely. David Epstein. You can follow him at David Epstein. He is the author of a brand new book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. That is the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Whole crew is in here now. Audie Weiner straight away. Shane Jensen to my right. Eric Bradley to my left. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. Faculty here at the Wharton School have been doing this for a little over five years now. We'd love to have you guys join us. Always happy to have a phone call. Numbers at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or drop us an email, businessradio at com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. Great way to follow the world of sports analytics. We're on top of all of our guests, and we get the word out occasionally from at WMoneyBall. You can send us questions, observations, complaints, over-under suggestions. We usually end our show with over-under segment. We are going to do an open line segment this half hour. We usually have a guest here. We're going to hold off and pick up a guest at the bottom of the hour, James Holzhauer. James burst onto the scene current Jeopardy champion, breaking all kinds of records. We're going to pick him up at the bottom of the hour. Between now and then, let's go through a variety of things. First, let's hear about, we just, we're just off the phone with David Epstein. David, the author of The Sports Gene and a new book called Range. Fantastic, quick conversation with him. I had the sense, fellas, that you'd have been happy to talk with him. For oh, yeah, it was super. I mean, I, I think the talk, I mean, he's obviously a, a, an incredible author, and I just love, as you sort of said, the sort of both skepticism and empiricism that he kind of brings to his writing. Uh, I just think the topic itself is fascinating. It, whenever anybody asks me, you know, like students ask me all the time, like, why did you go into statistics as a field? 
And the actual, the main answer I talk about is that I've always thought of myself as kind of a, a generalist. And, and statistics is the perfect field for generalists because you can, you know, if, if you never f- kind of could figure out the one kind of, you know, field or application you wanted to spend your life studying, well, statistics allows you to just kind of move between so different for, areas so for and example, fields. So, for example, you've done work on sports, obviously. Yeah. But you've also got a whole new world of like city. Yeah, urban analytics. Urban and analytics. Earlier well, in my career, I did a lot of applications genetics. in genetics and molecular <laughs> biology. And, and all, across all of those, yeah. there is kind of a, you know, the same sort of fundamental modeling tools and modeling intuition and, te- and kind of algorithms um, kind of transcend all of them. Well, my, so, I mean, I always joke, my, I'm a statistician and I've chair of the marketing department, I've never taken any marketing courses. So my there entire career has been applying statistics to other well, fields. Yeah. I will follow up. This is a trifecta. <laughs> I, I joined the stat department at Stanford without having taken a single statistics class at any level when I went to, to get a PhD in it. And one of the reasons why I was attracted to that program in particular was that there was there's essentially three classes you had to take. And from then on, it was just take whatever you wanted in the university yep. and you can get your, your, your PhD. Obviously, you have to write a thesis, you, but... But uh, what, I also, broad. what I also thought was interesting about what David was talking about, about the broad, and so this is this would be, I don't know if anyone's done a study on this, but let's imagine I told you someone's played sports A, B, and C. Does it matter in which order they picked up A, B, and C? Like if I'm sitting here and I'm a mm. 12-year-old, yeah. does the path matter? Like a lot of people will say, well, footwork has to come first. So you know what? You know, Soccer would be a great one to start with. Or hand-eye. Hand-eye. I'm, so I'm just saying, I'm sure people have done, let's call it, path analysis. It's not just, you know, if you like the current state I'm in, but what path did I take to get there? Because then you could, if, if that were true, if it were true, then one could start saying, let's optimize the regiment for a, an athlete. Let's have him or her start out in sport A, then go to B, then to C, as opposed to, you know, just let them pick what they want. But what's also interesting is that it seems to be potentially leading to changes, which I think would be valuable. One of the things that we see here at the university is an incredible amount of time spent on one sport. And they're, 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 they're all year round. I mean, if you're in the football team, I mean, technically speaking, there's only a limited amount of time devoted to practicing officially, but they unofficially practice the entire year. And that's been the same. That's been going on with these athletes since they were essentially probably before middle school. And I potentially, I think this, this research, these, 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 these books like this and this emphasis could bring us back to the earlier era where you actually were three, three sport athletes. And and beyond athletics, do you feel, like the education experience at the college level is becoming overly specialized as well. Sure, Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I, my nephew just graduated with a liberal arts degree. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, multi, a dual degree, but the, the base, the home base is liberal arts. And there's a lot of frustration over not knowing exactly what the job's going to be. And um, and you kind of, you want, I, as an uncle or as a family member, you want to fight that because there's plenty of time to figure that out in life. You kind of want them to sample for a while. But, fellas, let's move back to the world of sports more precisely. I'm curious. There's a lot of a lot of different things going on right now. Some some are slightly below the radar, but worthy of attention. So, Eric's here. I know he's been following the French Open. What's what's it's going to be? It's one of these events that unfolds over time. And so, wh- where are we? And what's it look like right now? Well, they're playing the second round right now. As a matter of fact, during the break, I was just checking on the scores. Another big win for Nadal today. Just steamrolling people. You say, well, he's not playing anybody. Yeah, I don't know. He's playing the number fifty player in the world, forty player in the world. So that's not a bad. You know, six one, six two, six three victory. Of course, a lot of there's some recent articles that just came out. One on si.com, one on New York Times yesterday about the key 
key for someone his age right now is conserving energy until the end because he's going to need it when he plays, whether it's Federer, whether it's Theme, whether it's Tsitsipas, and, of course, Djokovic. And so the fact that he's getting these straight set wins, matter of fact, they specifically point out in the article, it's less indicative of, oh, Nadal is back versus he's saving energy. Like, mm-hmm. we know Nadal is the greatest clay court player of all time. I don't care how he does against the number 40 player in the world, but I do care how he does because he's saving energy along the way. So that's where we are. We're in the second round of the French Open. Uh, so far, the only large uh, on the men's side, I think it's looking like you know Nadal and Djokovic right now. But theme on any given day, Dominic Team on any given day uh, can absolutely win. Uh, Federer on any given day, I don't think he can put seven matches together. He can win. And of course, the women's side is that's Deep. the more exciting and side. Yeah. I mean, people are saying any of the top 15 women players, and of course Serena's really? not even in that top 15, could win the French Open. So it's wide open. You know, that, and that's where just, we are. Just developing. We'll be on top of it in a week. Yeah, right, right. we got a little more time on that one. So staying in Europe, Champions League final is this weekend. Liverpool taking on Tottenham. So this is... All English. Yeah. See, all, see what I know? Well, Fantastic. Well, the Europa's all English as well. So the Europa's the next tier down, and um, it is, what, Chelsea and Arsenal. Chelsea, Arsenal play in Europa. But uh, so Liverpool had a great article about Liverpool in the New York Times in the last week. I had I had multiple people sending it to me. It's 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 about the, the backstory, basically, in Liverpool. Liverpool's a storied club. Won lots of championships, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But they've been down for a while, and they're attributing, at least this, this writer and some observers attribute some of their success to their focus on analytics. They were earlier into analytics than the rest of the Premier League. They've take, probably taken them a little bit further. Anyway, a lot of a lot of folks around here, including our producer, Matty D., big Liverpool backers, and they've got a match. Are they the, like Houston Astros? Would that be the analogy perhaps here? They've got much more tradition than the Houston Astros. So it's it's um, it would, you'd need a fancier club that's been down a little bit and is, you know, I don't know who it would be in, in baseball. Yeah, well, anyway, we got we got. Is anybody going to watch this game Saturday morning? This match Saturday morning? So no, you got yeah, sure, no, I'm, maybe. I'm so not going to watch we'll one match. But we'll it, if I you have, don't have a World Cup, you got to pick it up when right. you can. So yeah. I've, learned, yeah. I've learned a little bit about about you know international soccer, in that basically there are an enormous number of professional teams. Incredible number, and that this premier, these upper leagues are only the top of the pyramid. Oh, yeah, and there's just a vast, a, a huge numbers of people playing professional soccer. Right. It's well, an enormous. Well, not that. Have you ever, <laughs> when you do watch them, have you ever seen an empty seat in yeah. any one of these stadiums? I mean, you watch these games. I hate to say it, but a lot of them are like it's 55 degrees out and raining, and there's a hundred thousand people at the stadium, right. and you know the people are chanting and they're really exactly. into the game. No one's getting up. I mean, you just look at the stands. It's like, me, that's I, a really nice day in England, by the way. What you just <laughs> described. Right. So but I, I mean, the, it's all relative. The analogy really is take professional football and merge it with college football, and then you get soccer. That's because there isn't well, any that's collegiate not, that's system. Right. Well, that's so, the age of the players, and even younger than that, really. Right. But they pick it up. But they, they don't have really co- colleges to attract a lot of no, local they, attention. It's it's their local soccer team that is and their, academies, their, yeah. absolutely. So the Matt suggests that the good analog in, in sports that we follow more closely to, for Liverpool is the Maple Leafs. So Toronto Maple Leafs mm-hmm. kind of the flagship program mm-hmm. of um, the NHL, but they've been down for fifty years or something. Yeah. And this is why it's a really good analogy. They are analytics forward. They are one of the more um, advanced on that front. And the NHL is not very advanced, but they're one of the more advanced. All right, guys, there's been very little talk about the Indy 500. Did anybody watch the Indy 500? I did watch the Indy 500. I, no, no. I, well, of course, the part that of course was, you did. No, no, the part well, that, look, it's easy. that's an easy one to keep on the, on the TV in the background. Yeah. 
I mean, it's Memorial Day weekend. It's sure. a big tradition. Have you ever been to a race of this size? Or? The largest race I've been to as a kid, my dad took me to the, I'm going to say it was like the Trenton. It was either the 150 or 300. I just don't That's remember fun. the length of the race. But yes, I mean, that was the one time. And I've been to uh, Dover Speedway in Delaware. Mm-hmm. When I used to live in Delaware, it wasn't I, I hard went, to go I to the race. I went to Indy in grad school, and we loved it. It was a great time. I would go again in a heartbeat. I mean, it's a it's spectacle one. It's 500,000 people. These tracks the, are the, enormous. The, but the speed of these things, the sound, the sound is the coolest thing. It's just fantastic. My father-in-law is a big uh, Indy guy, and I I tend to be with those guys on Memorial Day weekend. And so it's a terrific thing to have on the on. It's fun to what the gear up to it is fun. And in the end, and we I missed the last 20 laps or whatever this time, but it was a it was like almost historic. Seventh closest. There were five lead changes in the last 10 laps or something crazy. Yeah, like when that. I was I mean, I watched most of the end of the race and at one point as Cade was pointing out, there were seven racers within 2.5 seconds of the lead. So I mean, that is, that, is, is that a lot? I mean, that's incredible. That's incredibly close, close race. Because the thing is, is that isn't positioning enormously important, and the, the and the need to take a pit stop, and how right. does all that? And that, that's things that I don't well, understand. One of the things that bunch, great point. One of the things that met, led to this race being so bunched up was there were a lot of because of the rain, and also there were accidents at least later on in the race. What was interesting is for most of the race, this looked like it would be the Indy 500 where the most cars would finish. So there were 33 cars that start. I think up until, let's say, 85% of the race, 31 of the cars were still in the race. Then there was an accident. This is what bunched them up. Right. The red flag comes out, which means you pull into pit row, but your pit crew can't just come over and start doing a bunch of stuff. You line up in the order. But if I'm five seconds ahead of you in pit row, I'm now five feet in front of you. Yeah. And so that bunched all the cars up. With only, which led with only 30 laps left. To, right, which led to the exciting finish. And this is the other thing that led to it. It took out the variability of the pit stop because now they had enough gas. Yeah. So this means you're take you've taken out another. So they are source. allowed to service the cars. Well, no, no. But they weren't burning gas as much oh, because see. they yeah, were. Yeah. So, so now they were going slowly. Exactly. Yeah. Fully stopped as opposed fully to stopped. yellow. Also, but like, also in the yellow, they were doing laps, yeah. but at a much slower speed. So that saved them efficient. enough. Much more efficient. Saved them gas. So that's why another thing that people are saying it was really, really close. But the one thing I did notice about the Indy Five Hundred. If you take, you shouldn't, but if you took accidents out of it, it's actually quite predictable now in the following sense. Not which driver is going to win, but like which team of drivers is going to win. Like there's Penske and then there's maybe one other. But I mean, I think like 11 of the last 12 years, it's been someone from one of these two teams. It seems like whether it's their. Uh, you know, technology's better, or they team up during the race so that they, you know, basically drag on draft each other, each draft off like each other. Like cycling. Exactly. It just seems like right now, I can't tell you who's going to win the race, but you can kind of predict it's going to be one of these 8 to 10 drivers. But, they're, but they have so many cars in the race that it's not actually very informative. It's well, it's like, maybe 90-something percent out of a baseline of 33 percent. So we, we need to have more car analytics on here because we do. We, whenever we, we don't have it very often, but every time we do, we're kind of astounded at how analytics yeah. involve it. There, we did have a really great interview, I remember, a couple of years ago, I think on it was. NAS- on NASCAR on NASCAR. And, and, and we were blown specifically, away. Specifically, you know, that the analytics applied to pit stops we're, well, and when to do the them The whole optimally. thing. They're, right. track, they're tracking yeah. everything. So, right, exactly. When they have to choose when to do pit stops based on performance of the engine and what every other car is doing. Yeah. 
And I mean, every time we've talked to these guys, we're just blown well, away. Well, not just sophistication. that, just the level of in-race adjustment that can be done yeah. because of the data that's coming off of these cars. And right. so they're literally in that pit stop. It's interesting. I'm sure we as the novice fans, we're watching the gas going in and who's doing the tires the best. But if you actually watch carefully, there's a whole bunch of other guys rushing up to the car that might be tweaking, you know, some something else on the car in some quick way, like literally within a second or two, because they've gotten data that's come out of the, you know, tectronics and the electronics that are coming off the car. And they said, oh, we got to adjust this thing a little bit, this angle a little bit. I think that's a really exciting part of the sport. Did you see the what the steering wheels look like? I want someone to break down and tell me what is on those steering because it's all the data, basically the, all these, con- there are a lot of controls, but it's like a video game control. And they've got lots of buttons and lights and all the monitors right there on the on the wheel. And you know they've just optimized this thing. Mm-hmm. You know that they've put a ton of thought into everything that's on that wheel. be very interesting to know what they've decided is most important to have that front and center for the driver. All right, anything else on the sports front? We've got a couple of little ones. So lacrosse championship is here, Memorial Day weekend, another Philadelphia Memorial Day tradition. Eric, surely you've taken your boys down to this one for This was Yale, Virginia. Virginia wins this thing. One thing I did learn about lacrosse is that they've gone to a shot clock this year. So just like basketball 30 years ago, they decided that pace was a problem, and they went to a shot clock, and they managed to get scoring up, so they got possessions up without losing too much efficiency, and they gained some scoring. Yeah, so I mean, both of my, all three of my sons play lacrosse. I mean, obviously not at the level we're talking about here. So there was some interest in our household. Obviously, yeah. Penn actually went pretty far. Uh, Penn, I think, rated to the round of 8 or 16. So Penn oh, actually right. had a very good year in lacrosse, uh, lost a tough game. Of course, the Ivy League's very much involved in it's one of the d1 sports we're at the you know near the pinnacle of. And there were some very, very exciting games. And as Cade pointed out, the frustrating thing about lacrosse at the lower levels is if you have a two or three goal lead with you know four minutes left in the game you just pass it around the outside now eventually the referees will call they don't call it stalling but it essentially is that like that means it's like the old four corners exactly but then what they'll force you to do is they'll force you to keep the ball not across the half line but inside the box. Okay. So now the defenders, I'm not saying you can't just keep passing it around but it's a lot harder it's a much smaller space but I'm glad to hear that they've developed yeah, a shot the shot clock. Yeah, shot clock seems like a really fundamental change in the sport, and I guess maybe it's a little early to kind of really measure what the returns it. on that are, is going to be. But I, I, I ask, I ask, I only know a few people that are that into it. Yeah. The, that's where I learned about the shot clock, and I'm still learning the, the the consequences of it. But I thought it was a nice. It's kind of a fun analytics thing to play out. It's like, okay, they tell you this change happens, this exogenous change happens to the sport. What do you think the how do you assess the the consequences? How do you assess the efficacy of it? Like, what do you want to know? Well, the part next? that's all, the part that's exciting also is it, it must have implications for what you guys talked about in the first half hour when you guys were talking about Billy Bean and stuff. It must have implications for how you build the optimal yeah. lacrosse team now. Oh, for sure. Right. Like, there's going to be short, it, some probably some pretty dramatic arbitrages in the short term, and then hopefully the whole league will kind of adapt. Well, this is a college. You're talking about college. There actually yeah. is a, a professional lacrosse. League, yeah. I guess. I'm not sure. Oh, there's definitely yeah. professional lacrosse. Which yeah. country is the is the biggest? You know, fans of lacrosse is that United States? United States. Yeah, 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 it's like a Native American sport. Yeah, is yeah. Like United States. So uh, one one sport you guys aren't paying attention. I can tell you, I always rave about the golf. The, the tourna- I am paying the, attention. The tournament structure, <laughs> but NCAA men's final right now is what I'm talking about. So I was rave about this because I think I mean you guys. I'm, I'm surprised you're not more interested in this and how you design the tournament. And 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 we talked we talked last mm-hmm. time I was on the show, which was two weeks ago, about the amount of chance that you inject in 
these competitions. And there's an optimal amount of chance. I mean, it's individual or is this team? It's team. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get all the details right. But so you won't be surprised at why this has my attention. If I'm talking about men's golf, why do you think I'm talking about college men's golf? Uh, Texas. Texas is involved. <laughs> yes. What, what was the over-under There's on that? There's a lot in the mix. Are they in the final against Stanford, or do they beat Stanford? No, they, they're in the final. Right, and they're playing right now, this morning. Where? Uh, in, in Arkansas. So they beat Oklahoma State in the semis yesterday. It went down to the last match. It, when the last match went to extra holes. And Oklahoma State was the defending champ. And here's the interesting bit in terms of tournament structure. They, 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 play, four, they play four rounds, 72 holes. It's like a normal... They, 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 so they, they, you qualify for this from around the country. So all these teams come in, and individuals can qualify if you're if you're sufficiently good. And they play seventy two holes like normal golf, and they take they they decide by those seventy two holes who's the NCAA individual champion, and they qualify a certain number of teams to go into the match play segment. So you're playing everybody's just like whatever low total of if it's all five golfers or four out of five in seventy two holes stroke totals. And then they go into match play. And this, I think, is inspired because the stroke total is going to give you the better – it's the more diagnostic way to do it, yet it's less satisfying. If you want to de- define a champion, you want it done in kind of hand-to-hand match play. And yeah. so they qualify in kind of the more diagnostic way, strokes. And then they say, nah, now we're going to interject some chance, and now we're going to get it in the satisfying match way. So let me just give you the last anecdote. Oklahoma State, the best team in the country, defending champion, at the end of stroke play qualifying, they were 31 strokes better than this runner-up team. 31 strokes better wow. than runner-up. That's six no. strokes per golfer. I know, but this is my point. Then you roll into match play a couple rounds later, and Texas knocks them off because yeah. it's going to be inherently, inherently more variable in match play. But the claim here is it's more satisfying. You got to do it in match play. So I think they've got this wonderful combination of stroke to qualify and then match to determine. And, and I think the, the 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 analog that kind of popped into my mind because we were discussing it just moments ago is is, is Champions League as well. And in, in soccer, you've got this long Good. route robin, like each individual perfect league decides kind of who their best teams are through this kind of long, very balanced round robin kind of setup. And then, but then once you get to the Champions League, it's like this knockout well, kind of structure. No, they play, they play they, group they, first, then they play knockout, and yeah. for the first few rounds of knockout, it's two legs. Yeah, and then the champion, the, the the championship, which is this weekend, is one match. Yeah, so it would not be satisfying to play a two leg championship. But the other that th- wouldn't work. The other thing, the design that you've uh, described, K does it also rewards breath. So, for example, you may end up with, uh, you know, let's imagine it's five golfers. Let's imagine you have two great players and three bad players. Well, you can win stroke play. It's not just that it adds variability. You have to have enough good golfers. Oh, interesting. And so, look, in watching team sports like squash for years, it's a nine-man team or nine-women team. You can have three extraordinary players and you lose every match six to three. Yep. And does it matter? There's not more. In fact, we could discuss the design. Should winning the one seed get you more point? It's not how any match play tournament works. So it's not just that you need. You could win in stroke play. You got three guys that can shoot in the sixties. Then you got six guys that shoot in the high seventies. You're going to lose six to three every single round. 
So, I, I, why are you so bored by this, Adi? I think tournament design is fascinating. I guess I just know too little about this. I know nothing about it. I know squat about it. It's just, it's, <laughs> but I can see that. I can see that the amount of uncertainty, the amount mm. and location of the uncertainty, moves around, and it matters. It matters for whether or not you determine that whether or not you crown the best team, the champion. And to what extent it's satisfying. I mean, it happens in college yeah. football all the time. We could use computers, quote, computers, to identify the best teams and always place them on the field. But that's not satisfying. You want to see it played out, even if the consequence of it being played out is that there's more uncertainty, there's more chance, and therefore, you know, it's more satisfying but less likely to actually identify the best so you like the you like the screening mechanism that you described, Cade, which is, in some sense, we don't know that the best team's going to win. But at least since you're doing stroke play first, the best teams are in the final consideration yeah, set. Right. And after that, maybe it's the Shane Jensen yeah. coin flipping model. Right. But at least the I can't say, oh, my God, I can't believe the 27th best golf team won. No, mm-hmm. the top eight make it, let's say, to the final eight. And then it is well, what so, it is. I mean, in that way, among the four big American sports, baseball seems to be doing the best job of this. Agreed. Right? Long I, ass season well, to make yes. sure you determine who and the best teams flips. are, and then but, once you've got in that, I don't want set, just coin flips. I don't want just not, coin flips. It's not entirely coin flips. It's close to coin. It's flips. close, and hockey's close to coin flips, and basketball is like no coin flips. Yeah. so it's the optimal amount of uncertainty. Soccer's soccer's pretty good. Soccer's got the mix pretty good, I think. It's also not that different. Like right now, let's say you were talking about the Yankees. We've been talking about this. Happy to. Yeah, let's but go let's, back. No, no, no. But <laughs> let's say right now the Yankees were to make the playoffs. Okay. I'd have no faith in them in a short series because they have no dominant pitchers. Dallas Keuchel, sign him. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. <laughs> just why kidding. do you think the Yankees would yes. be a great team at that? I yeah. mean, yeah. Why do you short think short series that? versus the, the whole season is somewhat different? And we see this in basketball to some degree. No, I'm just saying, no, if they is, face the is... Astros, how could you possibly pick the Yankees right now, given our starting pitching and the Astros starting pitching? It would be almost impossible to pick the Yankees. Well, this is the I mean, this is the easiest version of this is just the length of the series and so basketball used to be the early rounds were three out of five and now they've gone to four Four out of seven seven, and it's it's taken some of the variants out one of the most fascinating examples is women's tennis in the in the in the grand slams Mm -hmm. they they i mean men men play three out of five in the grand slams and women just play two out of three and i think it's probably based in some sexist notion of the women not being able to do it but the consequence is helpful because in general and historically the right tail of the women's tennis distribution was a little more sparsely populated and so if you played three out of five matches you'd have the same champion all the time and so by reducing it to two out of three the unintended consequences that he made it more interesting that the very best player wasn't going to win with such high probability that kind of that kind of tournament design. That's, well, the, that's the simplest version. Well, most tennis yeah. tournaments are, are three. I mean, the no, five, most, are, most are two out of three. Two out of three, yeah. For like men's, too. For men's, for men's, for men's, for men's as well. well. That's what I'm saying. It's only these grand slams that are long. And also, the women's, the women's, women's tennis is extremely fun to watch. It's actually somewhat of a different game than the men's tennis because it's so power. The men's tennis is so power oriented. Right. The, the shots right. tend to be, the games tend to be settled in one to three. Um, the uh, women's turns. tennis and has women's become more power oriented yeah, as well. Yeah, but it's still, I, mean, I actually would love to get the data on this. What is the average number of points per game so in, 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 uh, for women compared to men? And I would I think the number of shots is not that different. So you're you're have a different frame on this thing. You're saying actually, in, especially these days, because of the power orientation, short rallies in mm-hmm. men's tennis. To, when you get to the Grand Slams, you want to be more sure that you're actually crowning the better player. So you you make them play longer. They have to play longer because yeah. the games are shorter. Well, they don't have to. You well, could, you that could means go, it's a good idea. Well, that's that. another reason why people are putting even extra weight that Nadal is likely to be the champion or Djokovic because, you know, 
let's say you beat, you know, yeah, sure, you can beat Nadal in one set. Let's say you beat him in three. Yeah. And the same is true of Djokovic. That's why I'm saying two out of three matches, I'm not saying those guys have great records. They have great records. But I'm saying in the there's no way you could predict anybody over Nadal or Djokovic in a best-of-five yeah. match on clay. There's just no way. All right, guys. So we ran through a bunch of the lesser sports. They don't get enough attention around here. We're trying to give them their day. Next time swimming? Next time swimming. <laughs> give, us, give us something to talk about there. Every four years. Every four years, for sure. We have coming up in the next half hour. We're going to break a little early so we can give some more time to this. But James Holtzauer, if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's rocking the world with his Jeopardy performance these days. We are delighted to have him. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Daniel Bruno, sound engineer, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour for our final guest, James Holtzauer, playing the Jeopardy theme song because James is the current Jeopardy champion. He's all over the news because he's eclipsing the earnings marks. He's over $2 million now in just over in just 27 games. The all-time leader, Ken Jennings, won 2-5, but he did that in 74 games. So the rate is impressive and not hard to extrapolate out to a new a new all-time high. James, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. James, where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, Las Vegas. Well, appreciate you getting up that early and, and being with us. And also, your life has to be a little crazy. It has to be a little crazy for a couple of months now. Can you tell us a little bit about what your what your routine is and what kind of attention? I think we just heard that you're getting attention from front offices and professional sports. I mean, what's day-to-day look like for James Holzhauer these days? Yeah, you know, I can't really talk about specifics about that, but there are, you know, constantly a flood of new things in my inbox every day, I'll tell you that much. Um, day-to-day, you know, I try to keep to my normal life. There's a lot more people stopping to talk to me in the grocery store than there used to be, but uh, mm-hmm. other than that, you know, I'm still taking my kid to the playground, uh, going about my daily life mostly normally. Mm-hmm. So how long have how long ago did you start this run? Uh, so the episode started taping back in February, but the first one aired April 4th. Got it. So um, tell us a little bit about how you approached this from the beginning. You've got a sports betting background, and so the the cognoscenti are all all excited about you're doing these things differently than historic contestants have done it. So you're kind of exploiting the structure of the game. You must have thought this through thoroughly before. And can you tell us a little bit about your mindset going into the going into the thing? Yeah, so I think that the average contestant watches Jeopardy at home and sees oh people are playing in a certain way, and I, I don't know if they think that's the correct strategy or they just don't want to seem too offbeat by playing it differently. So they go on and play the same way they see everyone else doing it. And, you know, what I was thinking is, you get one shot at this. If I want to maximize my performance on the show, what do I do? You know, I don't copy anyone else's strategy. I just build from the ground up what I think is the best way to approach the game. And I think that's similar to how I approach gambling. You know, you see people come up with their, oh, you know, this is a trend for these games to go over lately. But, you know, if there's no good mathematical reason why that should be true, then you ignore that and you go with what your math says is the right move. Mm Mm-hmm. So, James, this is Eric Bradlow. I've got a whole set of questions for you since I'm a massive fan of Jeopardy. And, um, for, for a couple of reasons, I've had a couple relatives on the show, including a cousin who won not just a measly three times, but certainly more than zero. Um, when you're playing, are you trying to maximize your payout 
or are you trying to maximize the probability of winning? Because those are two very different things, and I'm just wondering, especially now, I think it's actually up to 28, or at least as far as we know on us watching, you it's up to 28. Than, yeah, yeah, but he's not, he can't tell us what happened in ones that have taped. Do you maximize your payout, or do you try to maximize the probability of winning? You know, I think that's, in many ways, the two are actually connected. Uh, if you look at the way I play, it seems really aggressive, but uh, I think that I'm such a huge favorite to get a daily double right that it really makes sense for me to be making a big bet. Now, there, there's some instances like when I have uh, I hit the third daily double of the game and I'm way ahead, you know, there are times when people say I could be betting more aggressively than I am, but to me it's not worth risking a 1% chance of losing the game for an extra few thousand bucks. You know, that's uh, the expected value of future games is so high that, you know, I want to keep the 1% at 100% and, you know, bet a little bit to pad the win, yes, but... Um, so I would not say that I'm particularly going for either, but I guess as a gambler mentality, more dollars won means more than more episodes won. It's gr- it's growing exponentially. So if you have to think about it in terms of future betting, it's it's you, you can't take a chance of getting kicked out, losing by by uh, making an overbet. But my question is: so in the in the early rounds, do you do you, what is your strategy for for bet size? Is it proportional in some way to how much you have? Uh, yeah, so I, I've moved all in on almost every daily double I've hit in single jeopardy, and I think that is both the right move for me to maximize my winnings and maximize my chance of winning that game. Because uh, if you don't have a big lead, now you're leaving things up to chance in final jeopardy. It reminds me of you know a team that has a seven-point lead in the fourth quarter of a game, and they just call conservative running plays instead of trying to uh, go for a gambly first down and ice the game right there, which is probably their mathematically best uh, move. They don't feel like uh, it doesn't feel like a safe strategy when you're watching. Right. I think that that you know the difference is very important there. So James, this is uh, Eric Bradlow again. I was wanted to ask you. Um, a lot of times when I'm watching the show, you know, you kind of get a sense. Of, uh, by the way, I wish that in Jeopardy for the fans watching, they put a clock on the screen so we knew how much time is left. But it seems. Have you ever sure. thought about? Let's make it up. You're 2.3 times the next highest contestant. So right now, if you went to Final Jeopardy and you bet properly, you have a 100% chance of winning. Have you ever thought about slowing down? Like, why go for the big numbers? Why not go for the smaller numbers? Just eat up clock. Try to. This gets back to my same question about that might maximize the probability of winning. Do you ever think about slowing down because you know you can't get caught or you lo- minimize the probability of getting caught from behind by somebody else? You know, that seems like dirty play to me. And also, I think that the producers have leeway in how much dead air they can edit out of the episode. So maybe I'm not even sure that would work if I tried it. But I don't know. It goes against the spirit of the game. No, I even just meant choose lower amounts. Those, you know, it takes oh. the same amount of time to read a $200 question as it does a $2,000 question. You know, you tend to go from bottom to top as opposed to the classic top to bottom strategy. Once you have a big enough lead, why not start pulling the ones at the top and see how much time that can eat up? Uh, well, you know, I mean, the show almost always gets through all the clues or all but one clue anyway, so I don't think this particularly makes more of a difference. But, you know, to me, I, I feel like I play fine under pressure and maybe uh, just calling the big money clues right away when I think I can answer them and maybe someone else who's distracted by the game situation might work out well for me. It's it's not really something I think about during the game. It's distracting, I, I believe, to pay such close attention. All right, so, so I have a question about sort of betting strategy. And first of all, you, so imagine you were up, say, 3-2. to two. Your ratio was 3-2 to two going into final jeopardy. My first question, of course, is how often did that that happen where you were in danger of losing if you didn't get the, the, the final jeopardy? And the, the, the second would be like, well, how do you decide what to bet in that situation? 
So there's been three games out of 29 so far where I had less than double the second-place money. Uh, Each one carried its own significance. Um, Last Thursday, there was a game where uh, the second-place contestant had over 80% of my stack, and you know, I was definitely going to bet to, to cover him if he went all in. So his best move was to bet a little smaller, which he did. And if, uh, if both of us had gotten it wrong, or if he had gotten it right and I had gotten it wrong, he would have won. But we did both get it right. Uh, so it turned out to be an academic thing. But if I were trailing in that spot, I think, you know, it, it kind of becomes a game theory thing. But 99% of the time, the guy in first place is going to try to bet to win. So you just assume that that's the case, and you try to figure out your best strategy based on that. So, James, let me ask you a question. Um, one of the things, of course, people have been asking, and I'm sure you get this all the time and might as well get it on this show too, um, what would happen if James Holzhauser went up against Ken Jennings? So, But my question more generally, without a specific prediction on your part, although we'd be happy here on Wharton Moneyball to hear your specific prediction, um, are there age curves in Jeopardy? You know, as Ken Jennings responded is, you know, yeah, I wish I were 30. I think you may be 34. I'd like to be 34 again. I don't want the 45-year-old Ken Jennings. Are there age curves in Jeopardy? Because we talk about age curves in sports all the time. Um, Yes, I could definitely see that your reflexes or your knowledge base erode over time. That said, Ken was just on the show three months ago, and he was sharp as a tack and buzzing in really quickly. And, you know, except for Brad Rutter, the indomitable champion of the show, he had no trouble with anyone else. So I think that uh, if I were to go up against Ken now, it would be a great match and probably decided more by who gets the big daily double questions than anything else. Who discovers, who bumps into the big daily by accident. Yeah. 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 So can you tell us a little bit about um, how, what is the mechanics of this? So what, where, where does speed function in playing Jeopardy? So not all of us understand exactly how this works, but the first person to buzz in gets the opportunity. So how do you, how do you learn to do this and how do you train? And, yeah, there and, seems to be some sort of cadence to it where you have to anticipate exactly when the buzzer is going to be available and hit it right then. Yeah, so you can't see this at home, but they have a, a perimeter of lights around the game board that go on when you're allowed to buzz in. And there's an employee uh, who his job is to sit, activate the lights and you know try to keep it with Alex's cadence. So it comes up at the end when he's finished running the question. And you get a little bit of buzzer practice before taping starts for the day. You show up at about 7.15 to the studio, but they don't actually start taping an episode for three hours or doing a legal briefing, and then they give you uh, at least an hour of practice time so everyone gets a little familiar with it. Um, but I, I went going in, I read an ebook about how the Jeopardy buzzer works and, you know, the best ways to hold it. And you can see I'm adopting this thing they recommend in the book where you, you hold it really, uh, uh, I don't know, firmly, I would guess, in one hand and then hold your, use your other hand to steady the wrist of the buzzer hand. And that way you have no wasted motion. It's kind of like, you know, I think the way a hitting coach would instruct the batter to make sure that everything he does is working for his swing, you know, not because that difference in reaction time is really important when you get there. So, James, let me also ask you, um, do you study between tapings? Like, for example, do you, you know, are you a Bayesian updater about your knowledge? So you'll see a category on, you know, I don't know, classical music. And, you know, um, it's not even just that you weren't the one that buzzed in. Maybe you just say, wow, I don't really know much about that. And you say, that could be a category again. So how much are you investing in your, let's call it, off-court training for future episodes? Uh, so I had about three weeks of lead time before between when they called me and when I had to first go into the studio. And I will say I studied pretty hard during that time. Um, and what, what they do in the tapings, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this, uh, you have 
two days a week where they tape. Uh, it's typically Tuesday and Wednesday. You have five episodes on Tuesday, five episodes on Wednesday, and then at least five days off. Sometimes they take a whole week off. Uh, and to be honest, like when, when the taping procedure is going on, I miss my family so much during those two days, plus the travel time it takes me to get there that most of the rest of the week, I'm just spending soaking up time with my kid and my wife, uh, and maybe studying a little. And, you know, if you really want to get Bayesian about it, you could think like, okay, I, well, I don't know much about classical music, but they just had a category about this. They're so probably not going to have one again for a month, maybe. And so I have a little, mm. uh, time mm. before I really need to drill that. Well, related to that, um, when you see the categories pop up, do you say to yourself, Aha, aha, I know a lot about this one. I'm going to build the big lead, which, by the way, may even put, given now you're a 28-29 time champion, may even put more pressure on my opponents. Do you strategically say, do you just literally rank order them from your prior beliefs of top knowledge to lowest knowledge and just go in that order? Or is there something more strategic than that? Although that's pretty strategic. You know, I wouldn't say I do exactly that. Um, you know, I've studied really hard for the show, and I feel like almost all the categories that come up on the show I'm pretty good at. There was one episode where they had a Monty Python phrases category, and I avoided that one every time I had the chance. Uh, but other than that, you know, if, if it's Jeopardy's been on a long time, you have a pretty good idea what kind of material is going to come up on the show and what you need to prepare for. So I was prepared for almost anything they could throw at me. We're talking to James Holtzauer. James is the current Jeopardy! champion. He's all over the news. Of course, he has eclipsed $2 million in earnings over 27 games. On his way, potentially on his way, to the record. Ken Jennings holds the record at 2.5. Of course, it took him 74 games to get there. James is also a sports better. I think we're going to get to hearing a little bit about that in a moment. So I wanted to drill down, drill down a little bit about the, the variance in your topic knowledge. So what you're implying is that there are some categories which you think you're nearly at 100% probability, or what I might call the batting average of your, of your success uh, probability, and there are others that are lower. So I think your overall, I saw the numbers. Some, 97%. Are you at 97%? My God. Is that what it is? Well, that's only... That is only the ones I buzz in on. You buzz so, in on. Right. Oh, so, so can you give me sort of a breakdown? If, for example, you were asked to answer every question, um, what is the variance f- from top to bottom on your, on your batting average by category, where 100, 100% or nearly 100% would be your best? And what, was it, what did it go down to? And which ones you were, would you be avoiding? So you say Monty, <clears throat> yeah, Monty, Monty Python. Python was Would you be at 20% mentioned. on those? Um, you know. Uh, so the Monty Python category, I think they revealed three clues, and I knew only one of them. Of course, they, you know, we picked the three highest money value clues, so maybe the ones with top boxes would have been easier. I would say, like, of the subjects I would expect to come up on the show, it would range from, like, say, the NFL at 99% to, oh, I don't know, Irish poets at 50% or something like that. <laughs> but, yeah, Monty Python would probably be lower than that even. James, are people, are you seeing anybody else adapt? change their strategy in Jeopardy? Or do you, do you anticipate people in the future changing their strategy as a result of watching you? So there's a couple things. You know, all of the episodes that have aired so far, none of the people I've faced had a chance to see me on TV yet. They, uh, the episodes have taped in February and March, and as I said, I didn't go on until April. So people at the start of the day would hear, oh, James has won this many episodes and this much money, and they think there must be something going on. But really, until they see the first taping of the day, the Monday show tapes first. And if you're on the Monday show, you really don't have any time to uh, see what's going on. But you get to watch the ones that tape before you. So if you're on, like, say, Thursday's episode, you've seen three games, and you know the James Playbook is pretty much on display there. And they have the chance to adapt to it. And I feel like in most of the games, when someone else has control of the board, they are going for the big money clues. They are hunting for the daily doubles, which I think is probably the right way for them to play. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, just building on Adi Weiner's earlier question, James, um, how, re- how encouraging is it when you don't buzz in, and in fact, you're right, you didn't know the answer. Like, how much do you pay attention to that as the game is going on? Like, you know, wow, I'm really calibrated today. I'm buzzing in on the ones I know the answers to. I'm not buzzing in on the ones that I don't know the answers to. How, do you pay attention to that as the game's going on? Um, I guess. I, mean, I think it's a little distracting, but it is, uh, you know, there's something to that. Like, you feel good about your decision when you get that confirmation there. Of course, there have been plenty of times when I did not buzz in and I did, in fact, know it. So, you know, I try to at least be... I don't know, 60%, 70% sure of my answer. So, so James, if, if I were the producer and I wanted to uh, make life rough for you, how would I do that? Would I do that by, by variation in category? Now that I've seen you play a bunch and I know what you know and what you don't know, would I start picking some categories like Irish poets and Monty Python and uh, maybe uh, Mel Brooks movies or something of that similar because I know you're weak on those categories? Or do I go with the, your, you know, the standard categories and make it harder? Which, which do you think is more, more trouble for you? It would be illegal for them to uh, change up a game show to try and aid a particular contestant or hamper one, so I'd, I'd rather not go into that because it could make Jeopardy sound bad. They're not doing anything below board like that. Oh, but hypothetically, come on. No, this well, is, let me ask you a question. <laughs> what, what would be trouble for no, you? No, I, right? I think, let me fr- reframe Adi's question here, but, but the same question. Which one would be harder for you? Harder, ca- not, the show's not doing anything. Harder categories or harder opponents? Uh, well, I mean, like, you know, the the one thing they could do to really screw with me is just put an absolute stunner of a daily double in there that no one could possibly know. And then, you know, I would probably go down to zero just uh, on that. But, you know, I don't know. It's an academic exercise to me. They would never actually do this. Well, let, let's... You know what, uh, someone suggested that they could actually make all the questions really easy and then, uh, you know, any advantage I have in knowledge base is eroded and then I have to just purely win on the buzzer. <laughs> well, that's an inter- it's a very interesting right. philosophy. Let's let's now talk about the transition. Now, you know, uh, our host Cade Massey talked about you're a professional sports better. Can you talk about the connections between sports betting and Jeopardy? Has has your sports betting career? Your obviously, you have to have a knowledge of mathematics. You have to have a knowledge of when you have odds in your favor. The idea of expected payouts, mm. all of this. But some of these kind of unconventional strategies that you're employing in Jeopardy were those motivated from sort of a sports betting experience? Yeah, I think a lot of it is an attitude shift. Um, you know, you have the idea that oh, this is ten thousand dollars in front of me. I would never risk ten thousand dollars on anything. But they're kind of like poker chips in a tournament you know that you don't get to cash in unless you actually win the tournament and you know they have this dollar value written on them but really that is meaningless unless you manage to get them in there you you when you gamble for a living you kind of get the idea okay these are these are game pieces they're not dollars you know i can leverage these to my best advantage in this situation if i lose these game pieces that say they're worth ten thousand dollars oh well i'll pick myself up and keep playing um and also i think there's the idea of you know this how I approach sports betting, it's not just like, oh, I, uh, I like watching this team play. I'll bet on them. It's more, you know, there are factors here that other people don't see. And what, how can I dig up these factors and best uh, mathematically take advantage of that to make a profit? And 
this is just kind of like my whole attitude going into the show. So, James, you've written, um, it's been written about you at least, so I'm reporting what people have, have said, that your sports betting kind of uh, approach is uh, in-game. So in where you've written or it's been reported that, that that's where the biggest, you know, missed, missed, missed lines are. It's hard to do an in-game line and you can take advantage. Are you building mathematical models or are you just uh, sufficiently sophisticated and good in your, in your head to figure out where things are, are off? Which is it? Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit of both. I mean, I've never bet in-game on something that I'm not actually watching at the time because I think there might be a factor that a mathematical model might be missing. But um, there's definitely, like, an idea of if you're watching, you can understand why the odds would be off because the they're overrating some specific factor that the TV announcers are highlighting, for example. Um, I think that the in-game thing in general is just they're, they're you know, putting up odds they don't know what they're doing they're just tossing a number out there with uh, very little thought it's not it's like the opposite of betting say an nfl point spread on sunday morning where people have had a whole week to analyze the number and uh bet all the advantage out of it listen james i uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today wish you the best with the jeopardy competitions you have in front of you we'll be watching you very closely and um thank you for spending some time with us this morning that was James Holtzauer, current Jeopardy champion. He's still on a run, over $2 million in earnings after 27 games, chasing the $2.5 million record that Ken Jennings paid yeah. a few years ago, though it took him 74 games. James well, it, Holtzauer. It, it is interesting to know that there are categories he doesn't know everything about. <laughs> he is a human being, after all. <laughs> and, and, and you don't really you don't really pick that up without talking to him directly yeah, because yeah. you don't know what he doesn't buzz into. Very interesting. What else did you learn there, guys? You were- well, I just thought that you know it's not that different than uh, David Epstein and the talk about range. Like, in other words... It's clear this guy obviously loves sports. Um, I guess would be if he's a sports better and stuff like that and sports gambler. But his range of knowledge is impressive. So it yeah. means that I'll, I'll just try to connect the two guests we've had on the show today. He hasn't spent his entire life just purely focused on watching sports, betting sports, etc. Because you can't get the range and breadth of knowledge. Matter of fact, it would be interesting to know, is his brain more able to absorb knowledge because he's stressed it on a range of knowledge as opposed to just one specific vertical. That's what impressed me the most is he's saying, well, with Irish poets, I probably only know 50 or 60 percent. I'm like, 50 or 60 percent? How do you even know that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I did read that, that he has a sort of a studying plan that he kind of, I mean, this was it's hard to believe, but he reads children's books. And if you think about it, the the whole Jeopardy approach is they're not drilling deep on I- Irish po- poets. When they talk about Irish poets, you get the main ones. Yeah. And so where where do you go to to immediately only get focused on the main the main heroes? Is is almost at a teen or a children's level? It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant to think yeah. about it. You know, if I, I've read you know a dozen books on Al- Alexander Hamilton, and, and it's true, I have. <laughs> There's just too much to know, and you forget what's most important. Right. And that's what you need to know if you're studying for Jeopardy. Right. Well, I guess you'll if you can recommend a children's book on Alexander. Hamilton. <laughs> I can't. For us, that would be great. <laughs> I don't know one. <laughs> Why don't we take the final turn into the home stretch here? It's Warden Moneyball's over under. Eric, you don't have a lot of time to lead this through, but you can pick up a couple. Okay, let's go quickly since the NBA finals are starting tomorrow. We got to start with that. Uh, five point five games in the finals. So I will start with Adi Weiner. Oh, I think we, this is it's a repeat from last week. I believe I went over on that last week, so I'll I'll stick. Uh, well, we didn't know who was going to be know. in. We didn't yeah, know who was going to be in the final, so it's of course a revision. Yeah, now that we but know, now we know. It's actually I went with with uh, with I think more than whatever it was with six. I thought it was so going over. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going under. 
under. I'm going under. I think uh, Golden State dominates again. Woo! I love it. Over. I'm going over as well for the same reason before I knew who the finalist was. I said, look, if you believe the ELO ratings, there's at least a 50%, roughly a 50% chance that Toronto wins the series outright, which by definition, not it doesn't have to go more than five and a half, but there's a good chance. So I'm going over as well. well. You know, I can, we could tell a story on both sides of this after yeah. it happens. <laughs> well, 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 we're going to be telling that betting story when we get two and a half to one, but we'll talk about that off the air. Let's now move on to tennis. 2.5 sets dropped by Nadal in the tournament. By the way, last year he lost one set in the tournament. So, of course, if he were to lose any match, he would be over because you, you would yeah. lose three sets. And remember, by the way, just to update you, he now ha- I told you he won his first two rounds. He's not lost a set. So he has five more rounds to play. Yeah. Does he lose more than two and a half sets? I'll start with Shane. No, he doesn't have to lose. He could win the tournament and lose one each of the yeah, next three yeah, rounds. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Shane Jensen. Oh, man. Um, you don't get to go after Eric. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to go I'm going to go over on that. I think he will win the tournament, but I think he will be challenged by a couple of these competitors. I, I don't know the bracket well. Does he have to go through team and uh Federer. And Federer. Federer. But not and Djokovic presumably. Djokovic the on the other side. Yeah. They're the one and two they're the one and okay, two seed. But okay. Thiem so and Federer on imagine, his side of the draw. Yeah, I could imagine him dropping a couple sets and then like one more in the final as he wins against Djokovic 3-1 to one or something like that. So, yeah, I'm going to take the over. All right, Kate? Uh, for fun, I'm going under. It seems the more sporting bet. I'm going under because I think Nadal's angry. He's angry that people are even thinking he may not win this tournament. Right. So I'm going under. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you know what? I have to. I know too little. So when you know little, you go to baseline. And I don't know how. I don't have a good baseline. But, I, I mean, last year he said he only lost one. one. But what's his historically? What's that been? We don't even know. I have to imagine he's going to lose more than two sets. I don't think he's going to lose the tournament, but he's going to lose more than two sets. So for sportingness and balancing the room, yeah, I'm going to go over. Okay. Uh, one that just related to our last uh, guest, James Holthauser. Uh 74 and a half wins for him, and he's currently at 29. So does he end up, forget the money, because he could win three more episodes and he'll end up with more money than Ken Jennings. Over under seventy four and a half wins. We'll start with Cade Massey. I, I have nothing to base this on, having not watched an episode of Jeopardy in a long time. But I'm going to go under. I'm going to go under. It's a long. It's a long time to play. Why does he want to play seventy four games? Come on, man. Move on with life. I'm going under as well. I think that's. I uh, there's some sort of randomness. There's going to be one final uh, double Jeopardy question he gets wrong that you know takes him down to zero. He can't quite catch up. That's yeah. 50 more episodes, essentially. He's, he's betting more aggressively than Jennings he's, he's is, be- right? did, Oh, right? much more aggressively. Well, so. so I'm going to go under. Yeah. He, 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 the data we have is about 10% of the time, just over 10% of the time, 10, 15% of the time, he's challenged at the end, so he needs to get the the uh, the final. He Great claims way to he, think gets, about he it. gets it nearly almost every time, but, and, but then sort of as a competitor. So I'm only I'm going to go under only because I think it's it's just a, a reasoning from extremes. You got to go down. There's and last Shane Jensen. Yeah, I think the same thing. He's taking a more risk tolerance strategy than Ken Jennings did and so I, I, I think he's going to end up winning a lot more money than Ken Jennings did but he's not going to have the same record right. in terms of number of matches. Shorter run. Shorter run. It makes sense. Alright, a little update for you. I know you're on the edge of your seat. Stanford, Texas. All even. All even. 
They're through six and nine. Six, it's seven, it's eight, it's nine. Spoiler, weren't you impressed that I knew Texas was playing Stanford? <laughs> I, am, I am. I learned something, by the way. Do you remember Charles Cootie won the Masters in 71? Absolutely. His grandsons, twin grandsons, are freshmen on the team. I played high school golf against their dad, Kyle Cootie, and their grandson, his, his sons, twin grandsons, are freshmen on the team. And they're on the course right now, even match with Stanford for the men's D1 golf championship. That has been another episode of Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to Matty Dats, Zach, our RA, the whole team here, Adi, Shane, Eric, Danny B, of course, on the board, and our listeners. You guys, enjoy your sports between now and next time. We'll be back here doing it again next Wednesday. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.